Hey, this is Ando from SenseiAndo.com. You're listening to the longest-running longest martial, martial arts, arts podcast, podcast in the world. world. Karate Cafe. Welcome to Karate Cafe, your source for martial arts conversations since 2005. Karate Cafe is sponsored by Piranha Gear. Visit PiranhaGear.com for all your martial arts equipment needs. And now, here's your hosts... Paul Wilson and Dan Williams. Hello again, everybody. It's Paul Wilson here with another episode of Karate Cafe. Uh, today, we have sat down in the massive Karate Cafe studio with Roy Kamen, author of the new book, Karate Beneath the Surface. Roy's been training in various martial arts for over 50 years, including Goju-ryu, Shotokan, Shorekan, and others. He discusses his path, writing the book, and, as ever, a Karate Cafe tangent. Hey, and some of you may recall that uh, down here in Texas, we've had a little bit of weather. Hurricane Harvey has pretty much boogered up uh, the entire coast and Houston. Relief efforts are on the way, and if there's anything you can do to help, time, money, or materials would be greatly appreciated. And also, don't forget the coast cities, uh, Port Aransas, Rockport, all those are down there they were not so much hit by flooding as just the full force of the hurricane. So anything you can do to help would be fantastic. If you want, you can donate to us here at Karate Cafe. Go on the website and hit the donate link. Or if you want to use our Amazon store, karatecafe.com slash Amazon, uh, and then let us know when you buy some stuff. We'll make sure all that money gets to somebody that can help. Anyway, Dan and I will be right back with our interview with Roy Kamen, author of Karate Beneath the Surface. Karate Cafe is sponsored in part by the TheDojoManager.com. It's like the five-finger death touch for managing your dojo. Okay, we're back with Roy Kamen, the author of Karate Beneath the Surface. Roy, I appreciate you coming on uh, the show. Well, I very much appreciate you having me on your show. It's great <laughs> being here. Right. Uh, so you have a pretty rich uh, history uh, and, and, a, and a long history, 50 years in, in the martial arts. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I started in, uh, I guess I was uh, about 12 years old when my brother Robert um, started studying karate uh, Ishinru with Ed McGrath in uh, Queens, New York. And I was his, I guess you could say I was his uki. Throwing, uh, you know, yeah, throw a punch at me. Let me, let me see what happens. So I, I learned early to uh, to take the punishment. And he started teaching at NYU University in New York um, about two years after that. And that was my first official class with him. I studied with him for about, on and off for about five years, Ishinru Karate. And then I took a break uh, as he moved on to his life and stopped teaching. And I um, I took a short stint with Toyotaro Miyazaki, who ran the Shotokan school in Flushing, Queens. He was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with him, he was one of the top fighters in Japan that came over. And he was a tough, tough fighter. He was great. The school was awesome. Uh, I found it a little too militaristic for me. Um, a little, I didn't like the style. I, I come from Ishinru, and it was softer, uh, more fluid, and it just felt better to me. Um, so I stopped training with him after only three months, and um, about a month after that, my brother let me know that he had been to an Okinawan school in the city in, in Manhattan, and it was absolutely remarkable. So they had a demonstration, 
And I went down to their headquarters in New York City in uh, Rockefeller Center. And Master Seikichi Taguchi, who was one of Chojun Miyagi's top students, um, he had come into town with a few Okinawan students of his, and they put on a demo of what Shurikan Karate was. And I got to tell you, I was completely blown away. Uh, these guys, they were doing gorgeous kata. They did a fantastic warm-up uh, system that covered the entire body from the toes to the head, um, stretching, strengthening, twisting, turning. It was fantastic. Breathing, it was all incorporated. Uh, it had a very spiritual feel to the place. And then they did some kisos and bunkai two-man forms. And I got to tell you, they did a seisan, uh, a seipai bunkai that knocked my socks off. Um, these guys, they stood literally toe-to-toe within killing distance of each other and went at each other full force. And in the end, the last technique was turning the guy over by his head. And sure enough, one guy grabbed the other one and flipped him over by his head. Oh, and, the other, and the other guy countered by flipping properly and getting out of it. It was absolutely remarkable. So I signed up on the spot. So uh, what, what year was that? 1974, March 74. So, I mean, that's like, that's serious, like old school, you know, karate. I mean, that's, you know, when, when people, you know, today they, they talk about, and we've talked about in other, in other episodes about how karate has changed. It's gotten softer or watered down or, you know, or, or different. Um, I mean, I guess that's an important point. So like what you're seeing back then and like what you see today, uh, has that changed? Have you seen that? a change in your karate like i mean from from the your beginnings to like how you do it now okay that's a really good question um i i i think i'm in a small group that has stayed with one style for a long time um i had no need to go outside of the style i really haven't mixed it up with too many people from other styles uh i i never really approached martial arts to learn how to fight um, I was into meditation. I did transcendental meditation for quite a while. I was into the state of consciousness, raising consciousness. And when I went to this school, to the dojo in Manhattan, I got a real sense of the spirituality behind what Master Taguchi was trying to portray as martial arts. Uh, Shurikan means the house of courtesy and manners. And that was the most important thing there. You, uh, you treat your juniors kindly and you respect your seniors. Um, you don't let anyone hit you and you don't hit anybody and you strive for personal and character building traits that turn you into a complete human being. Uh, and that's what my focus was when I went in. And it was interesting because when I entered the school, um, it had been in existence. Shuri Khan in New York was in existence since the late 60s. And here it is, 1974. And there were two black belts on the floor. And I, I was questioned, why are there only two black belts on the floor? There were a lot of brown belts, a lot of green belts, a lot of white belts. And it turned out from the rumors that I heard, there was this guy. He was a renegade. And he had caused a lot of trouble in the school. And he had left a year earlier, just about a year before I joined. No one knew very much about him. No one talked about him. He was a taboo subject in the school. It seemed like he had done something really, really bad, and he was no longer there. No one wanted to talk about it. So I trained at Shurikan for eight years straight. And um, 
there was a moment about a year before I stopped training there that the teacher pulled some not such integrous stuff on me. And I really don't want to go into it in the interview. I go into it more in the book. Um, but it, it really showed me a lot of human nature and to put no man or woman on a pedestal ever. You have to know who you can trust. Even when you find you can trust someone, you always have to be vigilant because um, betrayal is a terrible, terrible thing. And, and I see through the martial arts, it's happened all over the place. Right. Um, so what happened was, um, and I'll get back to your question about the, um, how the art has changed from what I see. I, uh, I was in the school for about a year after that. I, I basically forced the teacher to continue teaching me. He didn't want to because of what he had done. And he felt uh, he felt bad about it, and he didn't think he could continue teaching me. Um, and the one thing in Shuri Khan was that we would do these push-ups, these ten-count push-ups that, that were killer. And you know, you do 10, 20, 30, 40 of them in big classes. And when you were dying in the push-up, all they kept yelling was, "Try harder! If it's hard, try harder." So I said to the teacher, "Why can't you teach me anymore?" He said, "Because it's too hard." I said, what the hell is this? Uh-huh. For eight years, you're telling me it's, wow. if it's hard, try hard. I said, so you are going to teach right. me. Screw that other person. You are going to teach me. You're the only one teaching this art in New York. Wow. And so I, I stuck with it. That, that's, um, a, that, that's a new bent of someone instead of, you know, people like, you know, you always hear the old stories about people, you know, chopping wood and like begging a, a, an instructor to teach uh-huh. them. To actually have a student so like, no, you're teaching me. That's Tyson oh, Bach. Absolutely. That's a total right. change around. Absolutely. Oh, and it took him a half hour to finally admit what he had done. It was really shocking to me that this guy wasn't up front. So, um, so I forced him to continue teaching me. And in that time, um, a, a few things occurred that, that I didn't know about that had to do with this other teacher and his students who, um, he had gone underground after the, um, after he had left Shuri Khan. He, apparently he had built Shuri Khan from the ground up in New York. And this other teacher was sent over by Master Taguchi to take over. Um, and there was some, a lot of bad blood there. I, in the meantime, had started a school in Queens, Flushing Queens, where I lived. And we had about 150 students, uh, me and a couple of Shuri Khan friends. And we had 150 students aging from age 70 to, uh, seven. And they paid two bucks a class if they could afford <laughs> it. it. It wasn't for money. It was for love. We just loved the art. Right. Um, uh, the teacher from Shuri Khan, gave us a week's notice and shut down the dojo and he left the United States. Wow. I don't know if it's because of what happened with us. I don't know if it was because uh, he got a better offer in, to teach in Italy by Taguchi. I don't know if it's because he was afraid of this other renegade guy who was starting to come back out again. So anyway, uh, he closed the school down in a week's notice and we were left high and dry. The two senior students, Ichiro Naito and Sum Shantarika did not want to take over. They did not want to lead. They did not want to open a dojo. So I took it upon myself to find a dance space on 22nd Street between 5th and 6th Avenue in Manhattan on a Friday night from 6 to 9. This is important. So we would get the black belts together of Shuri Khan, none of the junior students, because I figured if we can keep the black belts together, we'd have the chance of starting a school yeah, again. Yeah. So um, it was during this time that one of my students in Queens said to me, he was a dancer and he took dance class in the city. And he told me that after one of his dance classes, there was a karate class, and they do exactly what we do. Now, there was no one doing what we were doing. It was Shuri Khan all the way. And there were no other Shuri Khan schools on the, on the East Coast that I knew of. So, um, and he said the man knew the teacher and had been in that school and had left in 73. I went, holy crap, this must be the guy. 
I got to go see him. Turns out that he was teaching in a dance studio right around the corner from where we were doing our Friday night <laughs> classes. We stopped at nine. He started at nine and went till Are whenever. You kidding? So we walked over there, me and two other friends of mine walked over and we walked in and he came over to us and he was really polite, really fun, laughing, a smiley guy. He, his arms, his arms, I mean, there was no elbow. He had, he was built and he was built all the way down. The guy didn't have wrists. He was so strong and um, no one wore geese. He had five or six students in the class. They were all Chinese. No one wore geese. There were no belts. They did the same warm up. They did the same kata. They did the same bunkai and kiso we did. So as a welcoming ceremony, it was very traditional. Everyone in the class did a kata. It was fascinating. And um, when we were done, he said to me and my friends, you guys are like shiny guns. Your katas are absolutely beautiful, but you've got no firepower. I said, what are you talking about? We, we were the strongest ones in our school. Interesting. He said, hit me. I said, what do you mean? He just stood there with his hands at his side, feet at his side, in shorts and a T-shirt, and said, hit me in the chest as hard as you can. All right. So I pulled off into a hard Zen stance and whacked him. I literally bounced off. The man didn't move. He looked at me, smiled, and blew me a kiss and said, is that all you got? <laughs> so I did it again and again, the same result. I, I'm telling you, when I bounced off of him, I must have bounced back about five, six feet. I, I was in shock. And then my two other friends who were bigger and stronger than me did the same thing. And the exact same thing happened to them. Then he gave me two telephone books doing you know, the big thick yellow pages that New York has. He says, hold these against your chest and go into a long stance. I blocked up, held these things. He put his fist on the phone book and went, <clears throat> I went flying 10 feet through the air and landed on my ass. He said, that's firepower. He did it to all three of us. And from that moment on, I said, will you teach us? He said, you already have a teacher. I will be your tutor. So uh, traditional Chinese, I will coach you. I will be your tutor, but I will not be your teacher. Well, needless to say, I spent Friday evenings from six to nine at Shurikan and from nine to 12 with Kao, Kowloon Ang, an amazing man. And, and you mentioned him walk, in his book, right? Uh, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I, I walked into his dojo and I get into the dressing room and he's in the dressing room. And of course I have a million questions. I was one of the senior students in Shurikan. I was in Nidan and the, the motto was don't ask, just do. So no one asked, well, I got a guy here that was not only willing to answer, but in length and in detail and leaving nothing out often shooting way over my head. And his philosophy is he will teach anything and everything he knows you will absorb what you're ready for. Fascinating concept. I spent six months that way. His students hated me, couldn't stand me. Um, but after a while, I backed on, got on the floor, and it was a wonderful experience. And I've been training with him to this day. I'll be going to class tonight, actually. Oh, the man wow. is amazing. Oh, wow. man is remarkable. Probably one of the best martial artists in Goju-ru in the world. Um, my brother, who wrote The Karate Kid and many other movies, he, I, think, I think our listeners have heard of that movie. I think so. He, he, <laughs> Probably. He was also, and he was also a student of Shuri Khan, so he, he knew the Okinawa Goju system very well, Master Taguchi very well, and um, he, 
he was well versed in the arts and he had come from very tough schools in the 60s of free fighting so he knew what the hard free fighting was yeah. that was brought back from okinawa and he knew what the advanced shurikan stuff was the uh you know directly from miyagi through taguchi and um he went to Okinawa to research Karate Kid number two, and he was met by uh, Daisensei Yagi and Daisensei Mateyoshi. And they, because he had popularized karate of right. Okinawa, and everyone knew Mr. Miyagi's name, he was held in very high regard. So they took him to they took him to see everyone on the island of Merritt, everybody. And when he came home, he said, "Ko is one of the best he had ever seen." Continue studying with him. He, Man is the real deal. So, and to this day, uh, and then Robert came after Karate Kid 3, I think. Robert came back to New York from his travels, and he studied privately with Ko. and Ko finished up all his Goju Kata. Uh, and they remain friends to this day. So yeah, that's... that's um, that, that's, that's, I mean, when, when you hear that story, it's a, that's like an amalgam of like every, you know, karate story you hear about, you know, the, yeah. the instructor doing something questionable and like you know or the instructor leaving and then someone having to take over the dojo that's like every story all, all oh, one guy it's it's constant one day i'm you know um karate illustrated like a movie <laughs> karate illustrated came out with um it turned into a book karate illustrated came out with an article on ko he was on the front cover and we we were inundated with people coming from all different schools wanting to test him because he's, he's a pretty bold guy. If you read anything of what he writes and says, he, he holds nothing back. He does not afraid of anybody. His motto is show me. He wants to be shown and don't play with him. If you're going to attack him, attack him for real, attack him to kill him. Otherwise hit shit don't work. So uh, I saw people from boxing and wrestling and judo and jujitsu and, and uh, from everywhere coming out of the woodwork and they would go after this guy. Um, and he would invariably have them on the floor writhing in pain or unconscious. And he always, every single time, he used techniques straight out of the Koryukata. It shocked me. That, that's when I knew I was in the right place. I'd never seen anything like it. There was none of this bouncing around and no playing, no games. Man just went for broke. If a wrestler grabbed him and got him into one of those holes that you can't get out of and you have to submit, all of a sudden the wrestler was screaming because Kao would take those meaty hands and dig them into his thigh and try to rip his his uh, his muscles off of his body. And the guy was in complete screaming pain. Um, no rules. If you go to fight, you go to fight. Yeah. Um, no, no tag, no playing games. Uh, that's how he teaches his karate. And so now, so I that, mean, and, and to this day, so that's, you know, going back to the original question. So have you seen then a, a departure from, you know, because I'm an Okinawan stylist and, and I've seen a change in, in, in training. And I imagine over, you know, half a century of, of training, you've definitely seen a migration of training. In our dojo, it is exactly as it was in 1974 when I joined, we do, we do a full bowing. We show respect to the masters. We show respect to our teacher. We show respect to each other. We get up and we do Taiso Daruma, the warm-up of the Goju system that we study under Taguchi. It, it takes anywhere from 20 minutes full speed to an hour and a half. Um, it, it has a, it's a wonderful system. It's, it's really all you need in Sanchin to stay healthy. Um, and after that, we do basic punching and blocking, head, chest down, closed hand, open hand, a variety of open hand blocks. We do uh, kicking, front kick, side kick, inside front kick, 
side kick, back kicks, you know, low back kicks, all kicks below the waist. Uh, we do Kiso, we do Bunkai, uh, and the Bunkai are, um, they're Taguchi Bunkai, so they're, they are the actually Kata done in a, a yin-yang situation where it's in constant flow back and forth. We stay close, we stay close enough to hurt, and, um, and it's intense, intense, intense training. And then we do Sanchin Tensho, very traditional, and then we bow out um, as we began class. Very traditional, it's never changed. My feeling about where karate has gone from the early days, I believe that, and, and it's in my book. Um, hey, there surface. it is. Um, I, I, I believe what happened to karate a very long time, well, if I go all the way back, I think that uh, coming from the Goju standpoint, because of our hand positions and body positions and, and, and kata that we do, the emphasis on it, I believe that a lot of what we do traces back to India, if not earlier, as religious practice. Um, I believe that the, the hand positions, I don't know if I could position, but you know, when you finish up the hand positions, this is the hand of compassion. And this is the hand of fearlessness. And these are ancient hand positions that, that yoga and Buddhism and then a long, long time ago. And there are lots of them in our system. And they have meaning. They have a spiritual meaning. Heaven, earth, man. So in Seisan, you have the three of mind, body, and spirit. You have it multiplied by heaven, earth, and man. And you do it in four directions for the number of 13. That's where you get your seisan. And I really believe that these are very important in the study of what we're doing because they, the postures that we take in seipai. I don't know. If, do you know the goju kata? Yeah, somewhat. Yeah, I train with some goju In seipai, these postures that we take, these postures that we take, the postures, they're very confident postures. And when, in the, the key of seipai is fighting long-range bladed weapons um, for evading them, deflecting them, and disarming the opponent. And in order to do that with a long-bladed weapon, you have to move in. If you move back, you get cut to ribbons because the blade just follows you and chases you. So you've got to move in past the blade. And most of seipai is moving in or turning around the weapon, staying very close. And it gives you a sense of confidence. So between the postures and the concepts of the techniques, you develop a sense of confidence. And I believe that, that the hand positions the positions we face, the ki are all clues to what the kathas are about. We're talking mandala, mudra, and mantra. And this has all been lost, as far as I'm concerned, in the martial arts. I was going to ask you about that because, um, you know, it's uh, off of what uh, Paul was talking about, there's, there seems to be uh, a very practical movement in the martial arts lately. Um, that's turned towards, and I say practical in the sense that um, pr fighting practical. Uh, and I know that from, you know, I've taken Tai Chi and a, and a, and a few arts like that, uh, Bagua, um, that, that focuses on, on far more of a spiritual aspect of the martial arts. Um, and, and one of the things that I noticed um, from your book is that Obviously, and from what you just said, it's it's about a, it's about a spiritual and emotional exploration as well. And I'm wondering what you think as far as was this 
the intention of the founders? Um, did, did they go into it to create a system of fighting or did they go into it to create a holistic system of spiritual and emotional development? And, you know, was, was the postures that you get into, was it, was it happenstance because it came from some of those older arts like yoga? Yeah, I understand. Or was it like intentional? I understand. I, I think that they worked in tandem and parallel because let's mm-hmm. face it, back in the old days, I'm talking the old days. Right. You had to fight for survival. You had to fight for your resources. Man had to fight for resources and to protect his family and his, his town or whatever. We're going way, way back. I'm right. talking even pre-India. We're talking back to caveman days. I mean, <laughs> bottom line, you got to right. defend, defend your shit. Yeah. Secondly, man has always tried to understand how do I fit into the universe? <laughs> Who am I? Why am I here? These are questions, I think these questions go way back also. If you look at the cave drawings, you can see that these are questions these people had. And you know way back when they had all of these ideas, not based on science, based on feelings. And they prayed. They prayed to their gods. And it's not a far cry from praying and offering your, your love and accepting grace and whatever else you get from the universe and turn into Sanchin. There's so when I open now, I open asking for grace. I touch the universe. I really do. It's becomes a spiritual practice for me. And then I drop down into my Sanchin. And it it really made my Sanchin and all my kata stronger. Um it's fascinating. So I do believe that they worked side by side and when they were trying to teach when you know when the warriors would come back from their successful hunts and kills, they would tell their story through dance and through movement. So they and part of that was thanking the spirits for allowing them to survive the encounter with these animals or other people. And I yep. think that the two went like this for thousands and thousands of years. And I believe that even in China, it was like this: the old school. Mm-hmm training, whether it was a village style or family style, or, um, you know, when you got to military, there was another, another deal because they were fighting weaponry. They, they trained with weapons. And if they went open empty hand, they trained to, like I said, in Seipai to evade and disarm and possibly take the weapon. And now you're, you have a weapon, which is in a much better place to be. So I think the two went hand in hand. What happened to our art that you and I and all of the people listening have studied, I believe what happened, most of what martial arts in the United States and possibly around the world is based on, is based on the, uh, the experience the GIs had at the end of the war ah. when they started teaching the GIs who were there. It was on the card system. The, the, the teachers received money from the U.S. government to teach the soldiers. Now, mm-hmm. let's look at what happened to those people. Let's look at Miyagi, for instance. He lost three children in the war. He lost fa- friends. He lost his senior student. He lost his martial arts library that he had devoted his entire life to. This man was destroyed. The spirit was killed. And now multiply that by everyone in Okinawa. They lost 50,000 people at minimum to the war. It must have been absolutely devastating emotionally. I can't even imagine. You can't imagine. Devastated them emotionally and spiritually. Take 
all this stuff and throw it out the window. <clears throat> when the GIs came through, they were taught the basic, basic physical art. Physical movements, That's physical it. techniques. And they came, there come from the filters that they had over their eyes that we, you know, we developed filters over our eyes over years and years of life. And we tend to see things the way we see them based on our past experiences, our upbringing, who we're surrounded by, the work that we do. And we developed these filters that let us see the world the way we see the world. That's how mm -hmm. you and I all see the world. And the GIs came in with a warrior fighting mentality. And that's right. what they learned. They learned how to yeah. punch. They learned how to block. They learned how to kick. They, learned, had, how, they learned how to kick ass. Right. Yeah, I had a, a conversation with a, a fellow martial artist, at Okinawan style. And, you know, we were talking a lot about, um, you know, like, like 2D and, and uh, you know, like pressure point strikes and all that other stuff. And, you know, kind of one of the things that he talked about was, I mean, uh, you know, he learned from his father and his father trained in Okinawa. And... <clears throat> And so we, we've been having these talks about, you know, like, oh, well, there didn't used to be this stuff when, you know, the guys in the 60s and 70s were training in Okinawa, all the GIs. And like now it's all blown up. And, and my contention or, or and it's not even I'm not saying this is the way it is. I'm just saying I try and stay very fluid of like it could be. And one of the things that, that I say is like, well, those guys were over there for two or three or four years. And they learned Nothing. what they learned, and then they, they came to America. And they may have been training for 40 or 50 years after that. But, right. but they weren't taught that. And so now that the guy who trained them has been training for 30 or 40 years, now they've evolved, and they're going, okay, now this is a component of the system that I want to start teaching. Because, I mean, they didn't stop. But the, the masters, you know, or the Okinawan trainers, the, the, the sensei in Okinawa didn't stop training when you left Okinawa. <laughs> right. They continued right. training and, 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 and learning their style and, 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 you know, discovering their concepts and refining and blah, 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 blah. So now, X number of years later, now they're saying, okay, you know, touch them with your pinky and they explode. <sighs> and, 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 well, but I mean, and, but then there's these guys in, in, in the, that train there in the 70s going like, well, I never learned that. That's not real karate. And it's like, well, because they didn't teach you that because maybe they didn't know it. Maybe you weren't ready. You know, maybe that's the art, you know, like it, it's it. But when they when you're talking, when they, they filter, they blind, they go like, that's not what I learned. So therefore, it has no merit. Right. And, uh, well, it's, you like, know, it's interesting. You, everybody opens their kata, right? Everyone has everyone has a salutation and opening. Every student I ask, why are you doing it that way? They say, because that's how I was taught. <laughs> I said, what, what are you doing? Because this is the opening. You're opening a door to another world when you enter kata and they have no clue at all. They do it because they were shown. Right. They don't understand about chi and about. Well, and I would be love. shocked if if they even understood what you meant by saying opening a door to another world. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm out there. This is out there. Right. Uh, no, I, I, but I think you know from conversation with you. Well, it's it's like yes, it's out there, but it's only out there because people haven't been exposed to it. It's not out there because it's it's some crazy idea. It's out there because people haven't really thought about it that way, you know? I mean, like I say, I, I, I took years of Tai Chi, and so to, to think about um, the opening as, like, the rising and setting of the sun, when you, when you put your head in that space when you're doing it, you give a different intention to doing it. And, yes. and just like you said, if you're, 
if you're doing something by rote and you really don't understand the the meaning or why you're doing the things that you're doing, then I mean, it, it's it's sort of like uh, making a, a handwritten copy of a book and never reading it. Right. Um, it's just it, you're you're losing all of the substance of it if you're just doing kick punch block. You of know? course. Now let's this this opens up another area, and this is why I wrote my book. Yeah. Um, I started to feel as I got older. I hit fifty eight, and I realized I got to start getting back into shape. I'd stop for a couple of years. Um, you know, life gets in the way. And I came back to class and, um, I realized that I had a long time now to get my, my split. I never had a split. So I've been working on it now for five years and I'm almost there. <laughs> I have until I die to get there, but I've been working on that since I was 13. Exactly. Got there well, take yeah. it easy. Don't hurt yourself. Um, <laughs> but I real I realized that I, I entered into this martial art thing to become a fully realized human being, going back to the ideas yeah. of consciousness. And when I married my wife, uh, Marina, who actually wrote a, a section and a forward in the book. My wife is a, Marina is a, um, she's a professional uh, entertainer, professionally trained. She trained on the level I trained, but in entertainment. She had the wow. best teachers, acting teachers, vocal coaches, the, the best, the top, top of the top. And her come from, and actually movements are very similar to what we do in our school. Um, and when I, when I first met her, I decided to marry her because we had a gigantic fight, huge fight. And I, I had to leave the house. I walked around the block. I was going to kill her. I walked around the house and I, I looked at myself. I had never been that mad in my entire life. I had always learned to suppress my emotions. And in martial arts class, you're always taught to suppress your emotions. Well, I realized that no one had ever touched me that deeply. Yeah. And that realized she's the one for me. 34 years later, here we are. Ah, Three kids. Amazing. Kids. Thank you. Um, so uh, I started to think to myself, there, there's got to be a, some kind of an emotional part to the martial art that we do. So I started looking at the kata, the Koryu kata of Goju, which are Saifa, Seyunchen, Seisan, Tsushin, um, Sanseiru, Kurunfa, and Pichurin. Um And I, I started to look at the names, and I started to look at how I felt, and everything I learned about them. And I, and I came up with some concepts early on, and I, and I was seeing a, a therapist to help me through life life issues. And she was a Buddhist into mindfulness. And I was explaining these concepts of physicalizing an emotional state. In other words, the kata was an emotional state physicalized, a manifestation of an emotional state. We are, we are humans. We have emotions. It drives us. Emotions kill through hate. Emotions make life through love. How can we shut ourselves off from these emotions that make us who we are and say that we are Karateka, really, you know, trying to examine ourselves. Well, what do we do? We're learning to kill. We're learning to take life. Right. Well, I started to examine the kata that way. And, um, I, I, you know, sypha means to smash stone ten times. It's, it's, a, it's a kata of destruction, absolute annihilation. And what emotion would go with annihilation? I just want to uh, break in here real quick to l remind the listeners. So last week we had our interview with Sensei Ando. And remember, Dan, what he was talking about, about, you know, when I say the part about leaving outside, outside, and he was talking about, no, you need to bring that in with you because that's part of you. And now here it is being, right. being re reiterated. Right. So, and so and I, he's I in L.A., to, so it's like totally, see, we're going to get a yin-yang thing. Coast, coast, coast. So I started, I started examining the kata from that point of view, and I came to a realization one day on a beach uh, a few years ago. I was, I was practicing kurunfa. I was practicing this on the beach over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, I looked up, and I saw a dark cloud of, 
suffering, it seemed like, over my head. And I reached into it. I did the kata perfectly. I reached right up into it. And I grabbed hold of it. And I yanked it into myself and threw it away into the ground. And I hit the sand in complete tears. I had a complete meltdown. It was an emotional I'm an emotional release I've never experienced in my life. And I said, wait a second, this is bizarre. I did it again, same thing happened. I did it again, same thing happened. And what ended up happening was I started taking this position, which is the, the, a part in current, if you know it, and I started bringing it in. And I started doing my sanchin this way and the koryukata. And I, when I opened this way, tears came streaming down my eyes. I reconnected with that emotional, spiritual space. So I started looking at the other kata really closely, and I came to this, that the point of martial arts is not to fight. Fighting is a byproduct. The point of martial arts is to become a fearless and compassionate human being. In order to be fearless, you have to know how to fight and protect yourself and be confident. All the stuff we learn in the martial arts, you cannot be compassionate if you are afraid to lose anything, including your life and losing your money, losing your love, losing your house. If you are afraid of losing these things, you cannot be compassionate, truly compassionate and give of yourself. So you have to learn to fight in order to be compassionate. You have to be fearless to be compassionate. So I went through the kata and I felt them, I felt them, I felt them. And I came up with Saifa deals with rage. Sayunchen deals with love. You're crossing your heart line. You're opening your heart. You're offering it to your opponent. So everything comes from the heart in Sayunchen. Everything crosses the heart line. It, in other words, you're manipulating your heart energies because if you love too much, you get, you get taken advantage of. If you don't <laughs> love enough, you lose the people in your life. You have to strike that balance. Um, Seisan, heaven, earth, and man. You're touching the universe. You, you understand what, it, what part you play. Seipai, confidence. Sesotion, wipe away all delusion with the sword of enlightenment. That's what this movement is. Um, so you see the world clearly. And now it's time to go out in the world through Sanseru and project yourself. Sanseru is a kata of projection. And how do you project yourself out in the world? I project myself this way. I have this hair. I have this face. I, I treat people a certain way. I do certain things. I move a certain way. I dress a certain way. This is how I present myself to the world. And it's a choice I make. And everybody makes these choices, whether they're conscious or not. They're choices that you're making. How do you present yourself? How do you project yourself? How do you project yourself into the world? And so did, is, is that what spurred the book? I mean, was, yeah, was that uh, like the, the first domino? It all kind of was all happening at the same time. Um, Sansei uh, Ru projection. And then when you project yourself out into the world, you look around through clear eyes of Sasotian and you see everybody's suffering. All the bad stuff that's going on in the world has its roots in suffering. So how do you deal with that? You have to end your suffering. And that's where this thing came from. You end your suffering. And once that suffering is gone, you really feel joyous. So Katakura Runfa is all about being joyous. And then once you feel the joy, you can then move on to the next level, which is Pachurin, Super Impei, which is all fearlessness and compassion, fearlessness and compassion, all of it, the whole kata. And so I came up with these theories and this therapist said to me, why don't you start writing these concepts down? So uh -huh. I went back, uh, we have a Chi Edo group. So my organization is Chi Edo in New York with Keo Hong. And we had a Facebook group for about five years now. And there were about 
for three years, there were some major, major conversations. And after these long conversations with very high level people, because K.O. knows a lot of underground Chinese martial artists from his background in New York, um, and he's highly respected. So they, they, they come on the board and they really support the hearts out and K.O. poured his heart out and, and a lot of knowledge was there. And I would always copy and make notes and make text documents of all these conversations and label them what they, a summary of them. So I sat down and I went through all of them where I must have had 75 conversations. And out of them, I picked the ones that seemed to make most sense to me for this emotional approach to kata. And I put them in order. I had about 20 pages written. And I, and I started making everything in my own words and my own understanding. And then I continued to write. I had about 40 pages, 40, 50 pages written. And I would always do it late at night when my wife went to bed. And uh, one day a year after I started, she said, what are you doing at night on that computer? Who are you talking to? I went, um, I've been writing. She went, you've been what? I said, I've been writing. She goes, what have you been writing? And I said, you want to read it? She went, yeah. And I threw down 40 pages in front of her. She went, what is this? You have a book. So uh, wow. uh, she said, keep going, keep going. Two and a half years it took to do this book. And I'm very proud of it. Um, and it's uh, com. You can uh, read some of the excerpts from it, see the table of contents, which says a lot about it. Uh, and this, uh, I and put yeah, we'll, we're going to put a link to it in the show notes for sure. Oh, that way, great. you want to be able to put because you also it's what it's Kindle, it's it's, it's EPUB, everything. it's it's everything, it's dead trees. As in my martial arts, I covered all the bases, so it's on. I had to use three separate distributors to cover every base. You can get it everywhere for any device you have. The best, the best is is holding it in your hand because I designed it with class in mind. So when you look through it, yeah, I noticed um, that when I was when I was reading over there that there's a, a, a definite arc. Uh, you know, and, and that was one of my questions was, was that happenstance or was that design? Uh, no, it was all by design. I spent almost as much time designing the book as I did writing it. And some interesting things occurred. Uh, Kata Pachurin is number 108. And this happened quite by accident. Kata Pachurin is on page 108. I did not plan that. But once it happened, I realized <laughs> I'm on I'm working in the spiritual plane. It didn't happen by accident, so I could not change anything in front of Pajuran. 128, <laughs> 108. So if I took something away, I had to add something. It was a very interesting process. And then I realized just the other day the highest number in the Taoist starts is 128. And my page 128 is a blank page just before the bow out. So I said, well, this makes a lot of sense because, you know, Taoism is, you know, it's emptiness. <laughs> so it, it, the book is really, um, it is really a spiritual manifestation of my experience in the martial arts and my life. And I've had a pretty successful life. I've, I've owned an entertainment company with my, with my wife, Marina, for 30 years or so. Started it in 1987. I've been in the industry since 77 before that. We've won over, won over 100 and 40 industry awards in advertising and production. Uh, we produced over 30,000 projects to date, worked with hundreds of celebrities, tens of thousands of actors. So that, that side of my life is, is very um, advanced and, and, and pretty well settled. Uh, my kids are grown now. My eldest is an attorney at Skadden Arps. My middle son works at Adweek. My daughter is a top stylist at Elizabeth Arden Red Door on Fifth Avenue. And they have their own successful lives. Um, I have a long marriage. Um, uh, my martial art, I still practice, you know, almost every day. I'm in class two to three times a week. Um, 
uh, it's just fantastic. It's what I call the triad of life. Um, and that's, that's what makes a good martial artist. You have to have more than just your martial arts. Um, you yeah, have to yeah. have, yeah, yeah. have a, bit, a career and you have to have a family and friends as well as your hobby. My hobby happens to be my martial arts. Yeah. It's, it's true. It's, you know, that's, it, it, that applies to martial arts as well about, you know, being well-rounded, you know, um, for me, you know, if you limit your art, you kind of limit, you know, you're limiting yourself, I think. Of course. You know, and, and so, and, and cross training and, and training in different and different disciplines and stuff like that. And, but, but being, having a core discipline, you know, like you've had, I think is, is pretty fundamental because, you know, you need a foundation and a framework with which to do us all, all uh, everything else you do in the martial arts. And then being able to tie stuff back and seeing that, I think, creates that mindfulness and thoughtfulness as a martial artist of seeing, you know, like, oh, that's on a page 108. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and then drawing that back and then seeing, you know, uh, seeing the, the dots that go back uh, to run that is um, uh, incredibly important. Um, yes, I think so. It's, it's, um, I, I think that to be able to look, you know, there's something I call reverse reflection, because each kata you learn then adds to the next kata. Yeah. But each each kata you learn also reflects back to the kata previous. Right. And that's true of life. It's a two way. It's a yin yang two way. It's kind of all jumbled up. And, it's funny how that stuff just kind of keeps keeps coming. So uh, and so the book's coming out. Um, it's out. I mean, it's, it's out. out and yeah. and so what's been? Have you gotten feedback on it from people? I've gotten remarkable feedback. Um, uh, people are reading it two and three times. I've been told there are two to three books in this, inside of this book, and people are asking me if I would attack the three different sections in more detail. Um, I, I don't know if I'll write another one. I'm a, I might be a one-book author because I've never written anything before. I'm an audio engineer by trade, so I, you know, I record. I don't read. Uh, I don't write, but um, I did it, and it's pretty wild holding it in my hand and looking at it like I made this. <laughs> it's really remarkable, but um, it really does say what I feel about the art. Uh, I, I think that um, you know a lot of people caught in the arts right now. Um, they learn to fight, but it's not really fighting because in real fighting there are no rules. If someone were to attack me, um, I would rip their throat out. I would attack their eyes. I would go for the groin. I would go to remove body parts. I wouldn't be trying to hit them in the chest or uh, kick them in the head. I wouldn't do any of those things. So, because uh, I'm not, I'm not learning how to free fight. I don't know how to free fight. I know how to stand in front of somebody who's throwing punches at me, trying to hit me hard and stop them, get out of the way and block them and, and attack back. So that's what my training's been: bunkai kiso, jisin, two man forms, um, kata, 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 kata. At so, all, at all well, and, you know, cases. one of the things that I uh, definitely the impression from you is that, um, you know, as far as fighting and things goes, if if you're going to learn kick, punch, block, then you're missing a tremendous component of your martial arts practice. Right. And you, I don't think you can learn any of the stuff I'm talking about without staying in an art for an extended period of time and having a teacher yeah, who understands absolutely. it. Now, I'm very lucky that, that Taguchi was really, I think, out of the three main students of Miyagi, I think Taguchi had the most spirit. I think it might have been because his teacher, primary teacher was Higa. Uh, Seiko Higa, who was the direct student under Kanryo Higashiona. So I believe that he may have maintained some of the spirituality 
and passed it on to Taguchi, who then put that into his Shurikan system. Keo was also a very spiritual guy. His home is like a Chinese museum of religious and martial arts weaponry. It's remarkable. Um, wherever you look, you see deities and weapons, crazy weapons. Um, and he brings a lot of the spiritualism into his classes. I mean, quite often half the class is him just talking about things, which is remarkable in itself, um, the lessons that he gives. And the way he teaches class, it has freed me, at least myself, to explore these areas that are not just punch, kick, and block. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really think cross-training is all that important unless you're really just going into tournament fighting. Then you want to have as many tools under your belt. Um, if you want to learn to defend yourself, best thing, get a gun. Best thing, best thing, best, absolute best. Well, thing. and, uh, you know, it, it, it makes me re reconsider cross-training. Maybe cross-training is, uh, you know, physical, spiritual, emotional, mental. That's, that's real cross-training. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, you got a point there. It, 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 you know, we've said it many times about, you know, being thoughtful in your training. It's you know, like, you know, there, there's a bugaboo with some people in, in Okinawa martial arts about, you know, like grappling and throws and... You know, uh, there's, there are people who say like, oh, that's never part of karate. And then there are people who say, no, it's, well, it's all in there. Yeah. If you look back, yes, it is. It's just, you know, it wasn't, it was lost somewhere or it wasn't taught, et cetera, et cetera. No, it's but, in there. But, but if you, if you choose not to look at it, look for it, you're not going to see it. You know, well, and, you know, and, it's, 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 that's in this mochi. You're talking about mochi bun. Mochi bun is the ability to understand by not being told what the technique is and you practice over and over and over again and then use your imagination, you should be able to figure out what you can do with the technique. For instance, the Soshin, the arm break. I've seen schools do it with a throw. They just change the movement slightly. And it's, now you talk about throwing. Right. So is it throwing in karate? Of course there is. Saifa, uh, uh, the first move, what is it? Is it a wrist break? Is it wrist grab? Is it an elbow? Is it a punch? Is it a spear disarmament technique? What is it? Right. And, there, and there's so many people that will I – and mean, that's kind of what Dan was talking about earlier about the whole the, – the practical movement and, and, and diving back into it is – but there's people that are, are totally limiting, limiting, limiting to it and not open for it. And so when you say like cross-training, it's like you can cross-train within your art if you just open yourself up to it and go like, okay, well, yeah. what else can that be? Right. And that's bunkai. That's the, the application. That's call it what you will. Uh, right. But, but there's so many people that – uh, it's not part of their training. It was never part of their training, and now, they don't do it. And they don't do it, and then they perpetuate it on. And it's the then, blinders. Yeah, you know, well, you'll have people that 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 go like, "Well, that's not there because my teacher didn't teach it, and his teacher didn't teach it." Well, that's probably because <laughs> they were never taught it. <laughs> there was a, there was a school. There was a teacher I know. He had a bad leg, and he he, he everything was a little bit of a limp, and his students. His students mimic him. And every one of the students has a little bit of a limp, and that's their art. That that's their art. Um, we now practice in a public school cafeteria, and it's a hardland only floor. And because of the uh, insurance requirements, we, we've taken the throws out of our practice. So ah. when we're in class, the young students don't know that there are throws. I mean, there are tons of them. All the quiches are filled with throws, and yet we don't practice them now because of the insurance thing. Two generations from now, there won't be any throws. And people right. will go, what throws? Um, I think wow. that it's very important to have a teacher with direct lines back to the originator of the style. Uh, if the philosophy of the style is you don't change what you were taught. I know when I teach kata, I teach it exactly how I was taught. When I do kata for myself, I don't. I do it the way I do it for myself now. 
after 50 years of training. So if the philosophy of all of your teachers going way back is don't change what you were taught, then your karate or whatever you're studying has value and you can probably find the spirit and emotion, whatever else is, is supposedly built deep into the system. And all of the older traditional systems have this. Um, it's just not being taught. And as we move away from those original teachers, uh, the art is being diluted right and left. Um, we're going into the Olympics now. There will be rules. Uh, teachers will start teaching techniques specifically to get more points. So the techniques that have fewer points will be taken out, like throat rips will be gone because it doesn't get any points. Of course. To do right. it. So the karate in another hundred years from now is going to be very different unless you find a school that, like mine where we have kept true to the foundation of don't change what you were taught. Oh, well, that's a really good spot to stop. Right. Uh, this has been a really great conversation. Uh, your yeah. book, uh, Karate Beneath the Surface, is, is probably a really great tool for any martial artist that's thinking about martial arts. And for any <laughs> student who isn't thinking about martial arts, probably should start reading something like this. Well, and I want to let people know that on, on Amazon, if you have a Kindle, it's it's four bucks it's only four dollars you can you spend more than that on a cup of coffee so yeah we'll, can, we'll drop uh, a, a, a link a, to, to both uh, in our show notes and you guys can click on it there and uh, i think it's it's a great resource and and roy i appreciate you uh writing the book and taking the time i appreciate your 50 years of training and i appreciate you coming yeah. on karate cafe thank you very much my pleasure great conversation thank you very much you're welcome Thanks for listening to another episode of Karate Cafe. You can join the conversation by emailing us at karatecafe at gmail.com. Call our comment line at 469-844-5791 or log into the forum at karatecafe.com. Remember, you can support the show by visiting our sponsor, piranagear.com, or shopping at Amazon through our link, karatecafe.com slash Amazon or donate at karatecafe.com. I'm Steve Henderson, proud supporter and voice talent for Karate Cafe. If you or someone you know needs an effective voice for a film, television, radio, or new media web project, contact me at stevehendersonvoiceovers at gmail.com or call me at 404-314-8400. Once again, thanks for listening to Karate Cafe. 